Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Carolyn Malcolm, the head of international public policy and research at Chainalysis. I love the looks on their faces, by the way. And Ulisse Del Otto, the managing director for APAC in Japan at Chainalysis. Caroline and Ulisse, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you both doing today? Doing great. Thanks for, for having us, actually. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you. You both have been traveling a lot, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's been pretty insane. You know, like I think this week we were in Korea and Japan last week, uh, Australia. It's, it's just never ending. What is it like flying around right now to that many places? You know, in the old days, it just would have been like, do this, make your connection, do this, make another connection. But are there any sort of barriers to this or is it just getting easier? It's more paperwork and it's carry-on luggage only. Carry-on luggage only? <laughs> yeah. Is that, free, is that because you don't have time or... Sorry, go ahead. It's just, it's just easier, right? Like you don't want to go through, like potentially they, miss, they, they lose your luggage or yeah. something like that. And I, I would say that it also depends on the region. I think in Asia Pacific, it's still pretty challenging to fly due to COVID. Um, it's probably easier in, in Europe and the US. Fair enough. I mean, this is my first trip since COVID. Mm-hmm. And it's literally just like a puddle jump. I came from Bangkok to here. Yeah. And flying into Singapore has got to be the easiest thing in the whole world. Yeah, no testing yeah. And, and all that. But even so, even without that, like you could, I've been to Hong Kong before, right? You get in the line there and it looks like it's three hours long and it's three hours long. Yeah. But in Singapore, you're flying, you're like, oh no, this could be like days. And it's not, it's never been more than like eight minutes. That's yeah. True. It's I fantastic. don't know how they do it. Anyway, before we jump into the main part of this conversation, Ulissi, why don't we start with you? What's your background? Like, where are you from? Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm Italian. I'm based in, in Singapore. Um, I, as you mentioned, I um, run Asia Pacific for Chainalysis. Uh, but prior to Chainalysis, I've actually uh, launched uh, a blockchain community between Berlin, New York, and London uh, that was focused on you know, bringing together entrepreneurs, cryptocurrency uh, uh, experts, and uh, developers to share ideas about the cryptocurrency industry. So it was a lot about educating people about, about the industry and the space. Um, prior to that, I've always been into uh, startups. So I was always focused on uh, taking company from companies from zero to 100. So uh, do we have the right structure to scale? Um, are we ready to move from one country to 10 countries? It's always been about that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's, uh, that's, those are some of the things that I've been focusing on in the past few years. But to be very frank, you know, I've been working at Chinalysis for almost five years, and it feels like 25 years. So <laughs> it's challenging for me to think about what I've done prior what to What you've done before that. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to remember. Caroline, how about you? So my experience is really different from all these. Um, I grew up in Australia. Um, I uh, began my professional life in Australia working for the government. Um, and about 12 years ago, I moved to France. I became French. I worked for governments internationally, so I worked for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. The OECD. The OECD, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So my background is actually as a tax lawyer, and I worked in tax for about 15 years and sort of fell into crypto, in fact, um, <coughs> looking at the tax treatment of cryptocurrencies and then sort of became more interested in, in the sort of technology underlying it and, and the space more generally and uh, ended up setting up and running the Global Blockchain Policy Center at the OECD until I joined uh, Chainalysis uh, just six months ago. This is so interesting. But what do you take from the OECD, from all the stuff that you learn there, right? This is a uniquely global organization, right? And it looks at things holistically, at least it should, mm. and then tries to understand how all those things fit together, right? How does that translate into what you're doing today at Chainalysis? So for me, that was always a big question. You know, I guess for me, the driving passion is to help societies and governments in particular prepare for the process of technology change that, that we are going through. And that's obviously, you know, crypto and blockchain are a big part of that, but obviously it's, it's much broader as well. And so when I thought about leaving the OECD and, and, and coming to the private sector, coming to Chainalysis in particular, it was about, you know, can I achieve that same mission in, in this place? And for me, 
I've, I've discovered absolutely yes is, is the answer to that. And do you feel like in a way that you have to do this, though? Do you know what I mean? In other words, you can, we can spend a lot of time talking about, and I don't want, actually, I don't want to spend any time talking about speculation or cryptocurrency per se. I really want to talk about the underlying technology and the community building around it because I think it's really important. But I think there's a disintermediation taking place, and crypto is the enabler for this, for saying there is a global society which has been so far divided by physical boundaries like mountains and oceans and, and rivers. And those boundaries are going to fall slowly but surely. And blockchain and distributed ledger technology as the, as the backbone for that is going to make it possible for people with similar interests mm -hmm. to be able to communicate and become a community. And in a way, you almost have to, because there's some question in my mind about what governments will be doing to facilitate that. And actually moving from OECD, not a government entity per se, but into this space, it feels like the next step. Is that fair? Yeah, look, it is definitely, uh, a, there is, I guess, a process more generally of, you know, reconception of what is the role of government when you have the opportunity for not just globalised systems that were facilitated by the internet, but decentralised systems yeah. as well. And, you know, what, what role does government have to play? I think, though, we have had lots of instances, and even just the pandemic has been one of them. At the end of the day, people still see a role for government. And who did they turn to when there was this kind of very significant global health crisis? Was, was government. And, and so what we're seeing in the crypto space, and it's quite interesting because obviously crypto's origins is a very sort of anti the system, anti these structures. And yet today we also can see that, okay, we want to have that innovation that crypto and blockchain offers, but we do still think that as a society, certain guardrails are important. And, you know, for, for all its faults, for all its challenges, government is still the entity best place to, to put those. Can we make the case that every technological, technological change, excuse me, starts as an anti? Right? In other words, whatever's happening over there is not good enough, and the only way we can solve this by, is by this. And I remember in 1997 and 1998, my younger sister was starting her own company. And I remember very specifically saying to her, Laura, you should definitely put this up on the Internet. And she was like, I'm not doing that. That's only for criminals. Yeah. But am I wrong? No, no, definitely. And that's one of the things that actually we talked about today uh, here in Singapore, uh, running Chainalysis Links. Um, Do you want to talk uh, a little bit first about what Chainalysis yeah, Links is so I people would, know? Because we I are would, in Singapore. I don't live here. You yeah, I would yeah. love that. Yeah. So uh, we started doing Chainalysis Links uh, in 2019. So this is really a conference that brings together both the public and private sector. Yep. And we facilitate communication between the two, facilitate collaboration between the two. Uh, we've now run four conferences uh, in the region. So we did uh, Sydney last week, uh, Tokyo and Seoul this week, and now and now Singapore. I like the way you're closing your eyes. I'm closing my you're eyes to, because it's, you're it's trying pretty to envision insane. yourself checking in to know, okay, that was Sydney. Yeah. That was Tokyo. <laughs> exactly. That exactly. was Seoul. I don't know where I, where I am right now. But, right. Um, it's fantastic to see the, the interaction between the public and private sector. And, you know, one of the things, the messages that we're trying to convey here is that if you look at what happened with the internet, but also other technologies in the past, yep. um, at the beginning, uh, it become, it, it's very difficult to see a technology uh, becoming ubiquitous. And it's very, very difficult for this technology to, to see this technology as inevitable, right? So you would have never thought that, uh, you know, 20 years ago, we would have exchanged information the way we do today uh, through, through the internet, through uh, social media. And what's happening today with cryptocurrency is exactly the same thing, but with value. Exactly. Exactly. And it makes it so much, right, like if I had told you you could read any book or get access to any data or access to any information at the tip of your fingerprint, at the tip of your hand, you would have said, like, this is magic and that magic yeah. doesn't happen. But now if I can say to you, you can have an exchange of value that's frictionless and seamless in a way that you couldn't have understood before, that's, what, that's where we're going. And yeah. you're right. Maybe your mom or your grandmom can't understand it. But you know they're on their phone every day chatting you. When are you coming home? When you yeah. forgot my birthday. But before, they never would have presumed yeah. that they could do that, yeah? And that's what you mean when you say it goes from being, I can't imagine this, to I can't imagine not this. It's inevitable, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah. Can I talk about the government role before? Because I don't want to uh, sound like I'm anti-government. But again, in the old days, the government was the only choice. And it was push, pure push, right? Like 
people wouldn't know what's going on. Governments would get a ton of information. They'd make a decision, almost like a decree, and then they'd push it out to people. It, for the most part, right, in a way that was benign, meant to be good. But now because of this, and because we have access to all this information, and now because we have a sort of democratized way of value exchange as well, now it's less push and more collaborating. Which is why I feel like you're in this perfect place to say like, I used to do this, and there's nothing wrong with this. But if we do this too, and the PPP part, right, the public-private yeah. partnerships Absolutely. really help, no? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I think this is, this is really true. And I think, you look, the pace of change means that this is no longer, you know, and, and this is true of sort of lawmaking, regulating generally. It's no longer this sort of top-down will tell you the way it's going to be. Can't be, yeah? It absolutely can't be. There's just not the level of knowledge needed to be able to keep up with this space. Even when it's your full-time job, it's a hard space to keep <laughs> up with. Right. Um, and so having, you know, having that more collaborative approach, the public-private partnership, sharing ideas, sharing information, sharing knowledge, and particularly for where Chainalysis is in the market, sharing data hmm. about what's going on to help make policy better, new ways of achieving the same policy objectives. Because the policy objectives we think about in this space are, are not novel. Keeping people safe, whether that be money laundering, investor protection, um, it might be around, you know, advertising, it might be around also, you know, resourcing our society in the sense of taxes. So these are not new issues, but the way you can actually achieve them is completely different. different. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if the back-end technology that's running it, right? So in the old days, you'd have Swift, right? So I can send money anywhere in the world. But there's a whole bunch of services that were built around it so that people could actually understand what they were doing and what happened after that happened, right? Again, just to give you some context, when I joined Morgan Stanley, <laughs> it feels like the 1930s. It was actually the late mm -hmm. 1980s. The first book they gave us was something called After the Trade. And the reason why they gave it to us was because they said the trade is great and it could make a decent amount of money, but if you can't process it and understand what happens after the trade, the trade itself is useless. And as the underlying technology changed, we had to build other technology around it so that we could still understand what happened after the trade. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening here. I like to keep making these analogies, right, so people in different verticals can understand the e-commerce side of this is easy to understand, right, and how that's changed. The financial services part is what we're talking about now. Yeah. But if that's true, then companies like Chainalysis and other companies that operate in this space, if they want to get all this data and then be able to analyze it, they have to build a whole new infrastructure around it to be able to do that. Is that does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that this <coughs> is why the sort of reg tech or subtech supervisory technology is also changing and will continue to change to fit these new rails that have been been developed. And that's why it makes it one of the most exciting things to be doing in, in, in policy. Today. Right. Yeah. But do you feel like now, sitting in your seat, that you're now working together seriously with the government regulators globally and saying, here's what we've found. Right. So maybe you thought this sort of regulatory infrastructure was right, but maybe this is better based on what we've found. Yeah, this is this is why I love doing what I do at Chainalysis, because you have access to the data that you can share with governments to help them make better decisions and to work with them to think about, you know, what are alternative ways to not just get to the same policy objective that we had before, but to get there better. better. Yeah, but, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but also if I can say something, we've never really seen, at least in, in my opinion, an industry that moves this fast. Like, we've never had anything like this before. And so innovation moves much faster than regulation. But I think that the role that Chainalysis can play and plays on a daily basis is really educating the different stakeholders in the industry. And uh, it's really about also educating them about being more dynamic about uh, accepting the fact that not everything can be controlled and that in order, for the, in order to embrace innovation, there will be events that um, you know, will force the government to make difficult decisions. You know, I could talk about uh, algorithmic stablecoins, for example, and some of the things that happen with, with Luna, <laughs> with Luna go uh, ahead. Celsius. All these are essential 
for the growth of the industry and to accelerate regulation in the industry. So can we talk about this for a second? Yeah. So it's so easier. It's so easier. Sorry. It's so my 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 voice is ahead of my brain. But it's so easy for the media to look at what happened at Luna and look at what happened at Celsius and say, like, I told you so, right? But the reality is that if you believe people are operating in good faith, right? I've met Alex Mashinsky. Do I have his name right? The founder of Celsius, mm. right? I didn't meet him for a long time. But I don't think these people were operating to try to rip people off. And yet if you look at the beginning of every technological transition, right? At some point, something goes wrong. Yeah. And the reality is if it doesn't go wrong, first of all, it's an edge condition. But second of all, if it doesn't, you don't know what to fix. Mm. Is that fair? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And it forces, <clears throat> it forces you know, regulators to mm. really uh, become experts when it comes to, you know, like stable coins. Exactly. Understand what's the difference between algorithmic and centralized stable coins. It just forces them to accelerate their knowledge and like establish policies that are um, in line with what's going on instead of like trying to look at answers from the past and right. applying answers from, you know, that, that's what we're seeing really today. Yeah, I mean, look, it's like trying to fix an M1 MacBook Pro and the only knowledge you have is of the ENIAC. Yeah. <laughs> is that okay? I want to get back to community building because you said your first foray into this was building a blockchain community. Yeah. Why did you think that that was the right way to start? Do you know what I mean? Like, why is the community so important? Yeah. Well, I always felt that most people uh, had... Uh, an issue in understanding, you know, what is blockchain? Uh, why why are we thinking of cryptocurrencies? Why cryptocurrencies could help two billion people to uh, go from being unbanked to access financial services? It's always been, you know, very clear to me that most people do not understand the value behind the technology, and that's why, you know, I started uh, working on, you know, like organizing events, bringing people together and educating people. And that's exactly what we're doing at Chainalysis. What we're doing at Chainalysis essentially, among other things, is basically bringing people to the same basic level of understanding of the technology. Because if we have both the public and the private sector understand why we are using blockchains, why they matter, what are the use cases, then it's gonna be much easier to regulate uh, cryptocurrencies, right. but also to embrace them. Yeah, and look, I look at it like this. There could be a room on the other side of this building, right, that's filled with cash. Right. And if I said to you, and I'm not saying that everything's related to money. Right. But if I said to you and, and we could go there, I could turn off all the lights. Yeah. And I go, hey, come into this dark room with me. There's a bunch of cash in there. You just be like, mm, I'm not going in there. I can't see anything and I don't understand what's happening in there. But I'm serious. Right. But even if I flip the lights on just a little bit, if I turn the dimmer up just a bit and I go, hey, come on in. You're like, OK, it looks OK in there. Yeah. And now I want to learn more. Right. Yeah, no, I think that, that, that makes sense. And I guess in particular, you know, often we will share data that we have about the levels of illicit activity Go ahead. In, in, in cryptocurrency. And it's, it's quite interesting because as I speak to regulators, often it's not enough to just give them the data and say, look, this, this is the number. This is how much illicit activity is. This is right. the comparison with TradFi, um, you know. Based on that, you know, the you know appropriate risk-based approach is, is X, Y, Z. To get them to really have trust in that data that you're sharing, you have to be able to show them how we know this. How do we know about how much illicit activity? Because this is very novel to have this level of transparency. Right. Completely right. new. And, and, and that's why I think, you know, if you think about TradFi, this is not a case where you have to go around to each financial institution and ask for their data and then hope that they're giving you accurate information. They're not hiding things from you. Right. This is we can see for ourselves. Regulators can see for themselves what's actually going on. So in helping them kind of build trust right. in, in blockchains, it's not just about sharing the information, but sharing why we know this, how we know this. So can you do that? So for the people in this room, we know why the transparency is there. But maybe both of you can talk about this a little bit. Can we just explain to people that don't know where the transparency comes from, right? In the sense that you can build an entire application that looks at every single transaction and why. Do you know what I mean? In other words, like I could never see your bank records. I can't go to Swift and just like download all of the activity there. I can't do it. It's not possible because it's not open. 
But if I understand the way blockchain and distributed ledger technology works, I can write code to just look at it. It's there. Yeah. But can you explain this? Yeah, definitely. And that's uh, the difference between what we, what we saw in the past and what we're able to, to see now. As um, you know, Carolyn was mentioning, the level of transparency is something that we've never experienced before. So we're basically looking at a public ledger that uh, allows um, you know, anyone to access this ledger and look at pseudo-anonymous information. So that basically means that we know, uh, know the size of the transactions, we know the date of the transactions, we know, uh, at least uh, with alphanumerical uh, numbers, uh, who's behind the transactions, but we, we do not actually know whether these transactions are between uh, uh, an exchange, for example, or a payment processor, and we do not know whether these transactions are happening and they're being illicit or illicit. Right. So these are some of the things, the distinctions that probably we can talk about on chain. And chain analysis, you know, you talked about being in the dark, uh, basically turn turns out the lights in this environment. So basically what we do is help any stakeholders in the industry understand, okay, these two counterparties that are transacting, one is an exchange, the other one is uh, a payment processor and they're exchanging funds. These are licit activities. What we also see is that the darknet market is receiving funds from this cryptocurrency exchange, so this is illicit. So we really allow regulators, cryptocurrency businesses, to basically understand what's going on and guide them through what actions can be taken to limit the exposure to illicit activities. That's what we can do today that was not possible before. Yesterday. So were you going to jump yeah, in? Yeah, but ahead. look, the analogy I, I, I like to use, it's, it's like um, you know, this public list of all the transactions that occurs. It's a little bit like the map of a city. But just looking at this list of transactions is like having a map of the city, but it's got no names of the streets. Right. It's got no names of the buildings. Thank you. And that's what chain analysis brings. We don't tell you which person is sitting inside the building, but we can tell you, you know, this is Orchard Road. This is, right. um, you know, uh, a Coinbase exchange. We can tell you who are the actors in the ecosystem and what's happening at that, that trend and transaction level. Are the regulators surprised when you go to them and show them this data for the first time, and not just the regulators, but others as well? Do you know what I mean? So, Absolutely. like, the sales process is faster. I mean, there go is ahead. Still, there is... <coughs> To the point that you have to repeat the same thing multiple, multiple times. I've been working with regulators who, you know, have been, you know, preparing legislation in this space for a number of years. And I will still get the question about, you know, but can I see, you know, a personal wallet or an unhosted wallet? Can I see that on the blockchain? That mm -hmm. people think, they, they, it's still very hard to get their heads around the fact that, yes, you can see all of the transactions, you can see all of the wallets that are available. But, but this is why it's, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing, right? Like the, the gap that we have still to, to this day like yeah. when it comes to understanding of blockchains, understanding of you know, what is possible and what is not possible. Um, and this is why that's a big part of what Chainalysis does is educating regulators, cryptocurrency businesses, you know, making sure that everyone, not simply between public and private sector, but also uh, globally, uh, gets this to the same level. The U.S., for example, as the regulators have a very good understanding of, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies sure. and blockchain. Can you say the same thing about every country in the world, in Southeast Asia, in Central Asia? That's not the case. Some countries are catching up, and that's our role here. So this is the big question for me now, right? So you've built all these communities, you've built a, an analysis tool, and a whole bunch of other things, right? And then you go out and talk to other stakeholders, right? We talked about PPP. And you've been traveling a lot. And I think this is super cool, right? Because now you're interacting directly with people in different countries, different regions, different religions, different backgrounds, different levels of education and literacy. Do you see differences? And can those differences be overcome? Do you know what I mean? In other words, the regulators in Thailand have made a decision. Yeah, this is kind of okay. We're going to let this stuff happen, which you wouldn't think would happen because it's Thailand. Right? And I live in Thailand. I love it there. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it, but I wouldn't have expected them to be super progressive, but they kind of are. In Singapore, the Monetary Authority of Singapore is very involved, it feels like to me. You would know more than I do, but that's not surprising to me, right? The U.S. is a free-for-all. It's on its own, right? But do you see these differences, and do you have to take different approaches in different places? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, absolutely in terms of both 
the regulatory approaches and, and how they see cryptocurrency, both at the very sort of macro level, is digital assets part of our vision for our economy? But can it not be? <laughs> so some still think that you know that you can cut it out, or that it maybe not even necessarily cut it out, but that it won't won't be a priority. Mm-hmm. Can I just jump in for a second, right? You already mentioned this, and I, you were shaking your head, yeah, 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 when he was saying it, right? But this idea of it's got to be impossible, and now it's inevitable, yeah. right? In other words, countries can't, they shouldn't get left behind because they don't understand that everything is going to get digitized. It, it already happened, right? In other words, we saw it in spreadsheets at first, right? VisiCalc was like the first way to take all of your ledgers and then put them on your laptop. And then it moved into Lotus 1, 2, 3, and then it moved into Microsoft Excel, and then it moved into Google Sheets. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, and I I, I think that's right. And we've seen that even at a bare minimum, (coughs) if you're trying to ban access to digital assets, doesn't work. So even at a bare minimum... It's not possible. (laughs) Yeah, it's not possible. Go ahead. It's just not possible to do unless you'd like to shut down the internet completely. Yeah. And I, I think that... Um, you know, so even at a bare minimum, you need some sort of framework to manage that. Right. In other words, you can't just close your eyes and just hope it's going to go away because it's not going to go away. And you may as well interme- disintermediate it at the beginning and get in front of it as opposed to just going, we'll deal with that in 10 years, by 10 years. Sorry, go ahead. We're seeing that if you think about it, like probably two years ago, several countries uh, were looking at banning cryptocurrencies. Whereas like the conversations that we have today is much more about like regulating cryptocurrency. What is the best way to, what is the best approach to regulate cryptocurrencies? Um, even though we were talking about like, you know, the fact that you cannot ban it in China, for example, uh, which used to be the biggest crypto mining country in, in the, the world, world right. they shut down everything. And now we're seeing activity coming back up in China as well. Yeah, yeah. Just figure it out. Yeah. Right? Sorry, go ahead. And it's, it's just, uh, you know, it, it is inevitable. And I think it's an, a unique opportunity for any country to, to really, um, you know, attract capital, talent, and, and, and it's very competitive. But I think that if a country regulator builds a strategy, a framework that, uh, you know, attracts these things, then, you know, there's going to be plenty of, of, uh, of talent and investment in that country. And I think that a lot of the regulators are still figuring this out. Uh, depending on 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 the, on the on the region, but the potential is 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 immense. Do you feel like the the growth or the development of cryptocurrency? I mean, look at its core, it's software, yeah. Mm. Like we can call it a coin, but it's not a physical coin. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. You were going to no, say no, 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 absolutely. I mean, yeah, it is. It is at its core software. It's just software, right? Yeah. And maybe it's highly encrypted software, and then maybe at some point it's going to be built on quantum computers. So all this stuff could change. But at the end of the day, it's just software. And I'm curious what you think about this, right? So at the beginning, governments are opposed to it because it feels scary. Then they're like, okay, this stuff's okay. And then they're going to go like this. Wait a second. I can have money that's programmable? From a public policy standpoint, this is really powerful. In a way, maybe too powerful. Does that make sense? In other words, if you're on some sort of welfare program, I want to give you money, but I don't want you to spend it on, like, fancy jeans. Mm. I want you to spend it on food. Yep. Well, I can just program the money. So that money is only available to spend on food. So from a public policy standpoint, it's kind of interesting, no? Absolutely. Even just the delivery of public assistance is really interesting. We saw during the pandemic, there was, you know, literally overnight, a need to change the way that we distributed benefits to right. people in need. Globally. And there we were, Sorry, globally. No. And, yeah. and there we were, Literally writing checks yeah, I know, I know. to send out to people when yeah. they needed money today. Now. And we could say, come back in six weeks when your check arrives. Clears, or when it clears, right? It's like, I got a check in the mail. Great, we can eat in two more weeks. Absolutely. So this, <laughs> I mean, this was, a, I think, a real wake-up call about our reliance on financial infrastructure that doesn't meet the needs that we have today. But then how do you do this, right? Again, in this room, it's a little bit of a bubble because we understand, like, if I sent you a check, you'd laugh. Even if I just, even if I suggested it, you'd be like, really? Why not just I'd Venmo? i frame it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a check. We can, I have a check that's framed. We can talk about that, too. Um, 
And actually, I'll tell you right now, I got a, I got an IRS um, refund, okay? And they forgot to give me, on top of the refund, they made a mistake. And you're like, oh, shucks, we have to give you another $67. And I'm like, great. My bank was here. I was in Thailand. So they sent it to me in Thailand. I was coming to Singapore for a business trip, and I came to the bank here, HSBC, and I said, can I deposit this check? Because I deposited the other check before, which was a lot larger. And they were like, sure. And I signed it and did all the right stuff, and they're like, Oh, a $67 check. We have to charge you $50 to deposit it. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. And so I kept it because it wasn't worth it. But we know all of this, right? So you can't tell somebody, even in a suburb of Chicago, which feels like a pretty you know, smart place, and say, don't worry, we won't send you a check. We'll just send it to your MetaMask wallet. How do you get past that? from a public policy perspective, right? Because to somebody in New York or LA or San Francisco or Singapore, right? Or Sydney or Berlin or London, like those people are going to understand that. But literally somebody in a, in a, in a suburb of Chicago might not get it. And it's not, it's not um, class. No, this is, I guess, the <coughs> natural sort of adoption curve that you get with any yeah. technology. You have your, your kind of like your, your first movers and then, you know, on day one, uh, not everyone got an email address. I agree. And I remember telling my mom, you should go to AOL. She's like, what's AOL? And I'm like, okay, go to your computer. <laughs> Absolutely. And, right? and, and, and the same thing, you know, and then for a long time, it was like, okay, I have an email address, but I don't really trust sending money online. I don't want to put my credit card details. I mean, if you think about, I mean, we put our credit card details online it's 10 just times there. a day it's now. There I mean, it, yeah. it just sits it's, there. It's crazy. Yeah. And so that, just, that is a process that, that takes time. And that's part of, you know, human nature is that we don't adapt necessarily that right. quickly. But you have your first movers. Go ahead. I, I just think that, you know, that it should be part of, like, uh, our education, you know. Uh, I agree. It should be one of the things that we've done, actually, in Singapore with Singapore Management University at Chainalysis. We ran uh, blockchain courses for uh, financial institutions, executives, to guide them through what is blockchain, what is transaction monitoring, and all that. But if we think about it, like, why, like, this is this technology is revolutionizing everything that is touching every every sector every industry we should enable the future generations probably you know the generations that they still don't get it about you know like how does the technology work why does it matter why how can it uh you know accelerate uh, or facilitate like payments and exchange of value this should be taught you know it's something that that doesn't happen overnight Education plays a very important role, and and I really think that you know universities, schools, and we're seeing a bit of that. But we should see we, that that should not be you know wow they also have, like a university has a university course uh, on blockchain. It should be oh this university doesn't have that. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, not the right, exception. Right, right. It's like it's, it's like the, the norm. It's the rule, yeah. right? And I look, I say this about a lot of different things. Like why didn't they teach that in high school? Is is my sort of catch-all yeah. phrase for everybody should know this. Yeah. But how do you get from a public policy standpoint, governments, because governments run most of the schools, right, to be able to then go out and tell everybody in the public school system how this stuff works? It's a rhetorical question, right, because it's super hard. And even you said, and I will use this from now on, innovation is much faster than regulation, yeah. right? The regulators are constantly chasing. And in a way, sometimes the innovators are trying to run away as fast as they can, right? So there's a balance there, too. But I think that a lot of education, at least when I was a kid, is a little bit about brainwashing, right? Six times five is 30. Just keep repeating the times tables, right? I'm older than you. But, but again, it's not that different. Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, it, it is. And, and I guess bringing new approaches um, into very established systems is extremely difficult. And that's often why um, it can be easier to start from scratch than to reform something mm. that's already in place. Completely agreed. Yeah, completely agreed. Like Greenfield stuff is way easier to get into people's brain than saying, you used to do it this way, now do it a different way. That's almost impossible. No? Yeah, it is. I think one of the things in terms of bringing that education en masse is I think the recognition, including in TradFi, that the people's entry point, you know, if you think you used to, you know, what was the relationship that would bring you to a bank and then hold you in a banking relationship with a particular bank through your lifetime? And it was right. a mortgage, right? So you'd get in. You would get your yeah. mortgage and then you're not going anywhere. And now I think increasingly crypto 
is that entry point. People looking to sort of say, well, what's that relationship with financial services that I'm going to have? And the entry point being crypto rather than necessarily more, you know, established products in this space. But here's the thing, right? Again, in the old days, that mortgage was the thing that kept you at your bank. Even if the bank was horrible, you're like, well, our mortgage is there. we got to make another mortgage payment. Now, the big investment bank said, I don't care where your mortgage is. We're buying it, repackaging it, and then we're going to sell it to somebody else. But you didn't know that, and you didn't care really, right? But there's some concern from people that, you know, decentralized finance sounds great, right? But on the other side, if it's decentralized, who's in charge? Right? Like, who answers if there's a problem with my transaction or I get something or something illicit happens? Who do I tell? Right? And we can talk about the protocols around specific chains, and that's neat too, right? But again, most people are never going to understand this. But they do understand I need to get on the phone with Ulysses and just say, hey, what happened? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, look, that that is also going to change in the sense that we were talking earlier today at links about how, you know, 10 years ago, the user experience for a centralized exchange to buy crypto was awful, terrible. And I think we're in some ways we're at the same point with DeFi now. The, the barriers to access in terms of the user experience are still relatively high. Your mum and dad are not going to get on and be like, hold on while I go buy, and, you know, a, join a liquidity pool that's just not going to happen um and so i think that you know these things that user experience and part of that is the consumer education piece some of those protections that will occur that will make that space more accessible but also safer for the broader community as as regulation also moves into the DeFi space as it has with CeFi. yeah again let's go back and make an analogy right but when cars were first introduced right they were hard to drive and there were a lot of accidents. And, and somebody had to walk in front of them holding, you know, a light to be like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you knew where you were going. Me. Exactly. But, but the other thing, too, is that all you needed to do was get into one accident and go, I'm going right back to my horse because I know how that thing works and all I have to do is feed it, right? And I, I like to make these analogies not because they're funny, even though sometimes they can be, but just to say that, like, in the course of human history, stuff changes, right? And there are early adopters, but at the end of the day, it just keeps happening. Right, just keep cycling through. I'm curious if you've learned over time from community building, like some, not specific things, because I think that's a BS way to talk about stuff, but just like a mentality around how to get people involved that may not be involved from the beginning. Do you know what I mean? Like when you first build a blockchain community, the seven guys, and back then it was probably mostly guys, were just like, yeah, this is so cool. But at some point you have to broaden the group of people that are in there. I'll be honest, I remember being at a, a conference here, I want to say 2012, but it could have been 2013, and I watched five guys. One of them was a good friend of mine. I actually got him on the panel, right, just because he's really smart. And I was like, what are these dudes talking about? Right, because I think they were doing a bad job of explaining it, to be fair, right? So what do we do to get people involved? That's a great question. I think it's, it's, it's all about, you know, showing them that or proving them that you know this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and this is a train uh, that we need to to be on or a plane that we need to be on where we have the chance to 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 change the world and you know when we were talking about cryptocurrencies back then you have over two billion people in the world that are unbanked Uh, there's a unique opportunity for these people to access financial services uh, but also for you as an individual the way that you're you know uh, exchanging value uh, t- today will not exist tomorrow in the same way. So you need to learn uh, how this technology works and you need to um, understand that value will be exchanged differently. So just like from, from that concept, it, it became pretty pretty easy to, for, for people to understand that this is much bigger than them. Probably that's, that's the thing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's how we started um, building the community. So I'm constantly trying to figure out how I move the conversation away from pure speculation, which is what the news reports yeah. every day, right? Bitcoin's at this price. Who cares? I mean, I honestly don't care at all, right? What I really want to know is what's the uptake of the underlying technology. But this is a boring story, right? What I, I don't want to say I struggle with this, right? Because I think I get better at it every day. But we need to figure out a way to tell people that like, this is just a normal part of technological transformation and that the speculation that you hear about on TV is just noise, right? And we have to ignore that. Does, is that fair? 
I think it is, and it, it was quite interesting at a panel earlier today, you know, talking to three different uh, companies in the crypto space, you know, an exchange, a stable coin, and an infrastructure builder, um, you know, all talking about, you know, how much they're hiring, fast growing, it's really, really challenging to find people, and that's not the story you hear. The story you hear is like, you know, run for the exits. Right. But, so this is my thing, right? This is why I love what I do. So... When I was at Goldman Sachs, one of the guys that joined the trading desk was an engineer. This was right at the beginning of this phenomenon where they just started hiring mathematicians and engineers to trade because they just thought, let's remove the human emotion from trading and just take the mathematical realities and see if we can get the algorithmic trading stuff and the high-frequency trading stuff to be better traders than humans. One of the things that this guy said to me was, engineers spend a ton of time trying to minimize noise you can't eliminate it, right? Mm. I mean, that's why there's noise on this line, right? And we can buy like a fethead or whatever to try to eliminate or to minimize some of the noise and find signals, right? And I feel like the news today, and, you know, blockchain is just like the most recent thing to talk about that has a lot of fun stuff happening in it, so it's easy. But like even when I was in Japan during the earthquake in 2011, you know, it was this big explosion. The nuclear reactor went bad and stuff. And people were calling me from all over the world. Are you okay? I'm like, it's 200 and something kilometers away from me. And uh, no one's died from the earthquake. They've died from the wave. Mm. But this is normal. And all the stuff you're hearing on the news is noise, mm. right? And I want to I wanna figure out a way in this space, right, to educate people. Because I do think the literacy side of this is really important particularly for the uptake? Sorry, no, go ahead. No, it is. There, and it was quite interesting. So when I was setting up the Blockchain Policy Center at, at the OECD, at the same time, right. some of my colleagues were setting up uh, an AI observatory. And the response to the two from policymakers uh, couldn't have been more different. I tell me, tell me. <laughs> blockchain was like, you know, the poor cousin of, <laughs> of AI. It was like the jailed cousin of <laughs> AI. <laughs> Let's be serious, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, and it was very, very, in, you know, and, and that fled through in terms of like people who were, a number of people who were interested, the amount of funding we got, so on and so forth. And for me, this is quite shocking because when I think about the things that are fundamentally challenging to us as a society, as a human race, you know, the level of risk, the challenge to the way we do things right now. I'm far more worried about AI. So am I. I was going to say, like, <laughs> from the onsets of human commuting with Kating with each other, there had to be a way to exchange value. Absolutely. There just had to be. And if I gave you a cow and you gave me a sheep in return, you gave me a piece of paper that said, in about two months, I'll give you something back and I owe you, right? Like, we've always been doing this. But like sentient artificial intelligence is something we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, and no control. Yeah. And there's there no control. We don't know yeah. what's going to happen. It's way scarier to me. And even right now, in terms of AI, the problem of black box, not knowing how decisions were arrived at, right. even before we get to sentient AI, um, assuming we're not already there. Um, but <laughs> you know, like even even before we get there, there are really big challenges to the, the way we've done things through AI. And yet the hysteria around crypto and blockchain is extraordinary. Yeah, because it goes up and down, right? So you can report on it easily. Look, when we were building algorithm, algorithms for our clients at Goldman Sachs, sometimes they would call and go, why did it do that? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I can't but, see the code. Sorry, go ahead. But to be fair, like, you know, I, I completely agree. But if I look at, you know, 2017, 2016, it was much worse. You know, you would, you would still have a lot of conversations about, you know, cryptocurrencies are only used by, by drug dealers and, you know, uh, this is... Yeah, it's, two, it's 2000 on the internet or 1998 on the internet. Yeah, same like, thing. It, we're seeing a, a, like a shift. Like we're really seeing people, you know, admitting that, you know, cryptocurrencies are here to stay, understanding that, you know, 0.15% of actually day-to-day -day trades are connected to illicit activities. If you look at, you know, I think there was a UN report... I was looking at fiat currencies, two to three percent of um, uh, activities are connected to list activities in fiat currencies. That's like a billion, a trillion dollar problem. Right. So it's and a also, much bigger problem. And also, like, what is the, the market capitalization of cryptocurrency today is, let's just call it a trillion dollars. Yeah. Approximately, give or take. One to three, yeah. Whatever, yeah. Yeah, depending on where the depending market is. Depending on the, but let's, yeah. just call, let's just call it two. I'm indifferent, yeah, yeah. right? But the sheer number of FX that trades every day is about yeah. $6.5 trillion. So you're right. 
No comparison. No comparison. And we may as well do it now when it's small and try to figure out this stuff, which is what you've been working yes. on, yeah. right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, but I, I agree with Uli that there has been a shift. So I agree we started well. the Blockchain Center in 2018. By about 20, end of 2020 is when people started coming, governments started coming to us and saying, okay, so what's this thing you've been banging on about that we should pay attention <laughs> to? Um, you know, I'd like to know what is blockchain, what is crypto, can you, can you tell me? So you started right. to get inbound interest rather than trying to push this thing. There started to be pull factors where, where governments would come towards you and say, okay, tell me a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember um, probably in 2017 I had a trip. I did a trip for Chainalysis in South America. Jonathan, our co-founder, couldn't make it, so I, I happened to. I lived in Argentina, uh, uh, so I, sp I speak Spanish, and I, I could communicate with the right. local entities. Right. And I remember having surreal conversations with uh, the central bank of, of Colombia, Argentina, and trying to explain blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Really? And for them, it was you know it was really like you know what are you talking about? <laughs> this is <laughs> not happening. And now it's inevitable, right? Going right. back to what we were talking about before. before. Uh, so there was a shift, and it's just going to get more and more clear for, for these entities and for everyone. I'll let you both go in a, in a bit, but don't you feel like there's a certain amount of fun and excitement in your job because it's still new? Do you know what Absolutely. I mean? That I mean, it's like so the most exciting job in policy right now. Right, that you've yeah. ever had, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's not like working at the OCD was terrible. It was super cool. No, it no, fantastic no it was also, super yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a different energy, right? Because yeah. now you're Huge. telling people stuff, yeah, about things that like are coming, it's new, it's exciting. And you go to bed at night not going, oh, I gotta go up tomorrow and do this. You're like, I just wanna tell more, sorry. Yeah, and I, I mean, personally, I, I feel dumb on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, you get to <laughs> I know learn so much. Yeah. Uh, it's things are changing every day. And, and, and that's really like one of, the, one of the reasons why I love this industry. You know, you never get bored. There's always something new. Because, you know, we're at an infancy stage when it comes to yeah. technology. So yeah. things are, are just being built as we speak. I want to change the subject just a little bit because you reminded me of something. Have you ever had, like, a job? A job? Yeah, because you said you started really early. Like, when you graduated. Uh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because yeah. you built stuff. You started stuff. You built a community. Yeah. Hopefully the answer is no. I did, actually. I did. Oh, I did. I'm sorry to uh, hear that. So <laughs> I, I did have... Um, so I worked for several comp uh, startups. Um, the one prior to Chainalysis actually went. Yeah, but you, but it's startups, right? In other words, you never worked at like J.P. Morgan. No, no, I never, I never worked for like large corporations right, or so anything like that. But yeah. this is what I mean. Like, so you wake up every day with this kind of innate incitement, excitement about like, I want to make this point. You said I learned something, right? I feel stupid. It's that idea of ignorance to me that drives, right? That's why I do what I do. Like, I've learned so much stuff today. Well, I don't know anything about public policy. Yeah, no, it is. And look, because blockchain, it's decentralized nature, challenges so many of the ways that we traditionally approach policymaking, it's hugely exciting. And it really is a, a space where you can do policy and do it in a really innovative way and have a lot of freedom to think up new ideas to to to, to support the, the mission. It's not that the mission has, has changed, but there's new ways to get there. Right. Right. No, no. Uh, I, I completely I completely agree. And uh, it's we're very fortunate, I guess, to to be part of this of this <laughs> industry and really <coughs> to see the, the to, to be part of you know something that is that is changing the world really yeah i just wanted to make that point yeah that the beauty of starting something from scratch and building it into something that's real is that you get to learn this stuff all the time and being on sort of the cutting edge or the bleeding edge regardless is so exciting you know i like to humanize things a little bit and i'll leave you with this you know at the end of the day if you're working at goldman sachs and you go home to your partner and they say how was work today which is work regardless of how much money you're making yeah but I feel like now when I talk about what I do, and it must be the same for both of you, like, hey, how was your day? Awesome. It's like the only thing I can say unless somebody dies. Yes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I mean, like, it, definitely when it comes to the industry in general, when it comes to chain houses, probably even more. I remember, you know, several situations where, you know, in 2019, chain houses was directly involved or used by uh, law enforcement agencies to take down the largest child pornography website in the world wow right I mean when you do that but you using realize, chain analysis yes, you had to do it yeah you realize that I'm having an impact I remember the Norwegian police once once called us 
and uh, told us, you know, uh, we have someone who, who was kidnapped and they're, they're asking for um, the, the, they're asking for money in crypto, like uh, the ransom in crypto, like right. it, and we could help, right? Yeah. And we could help them solve the case. And you're having, uh, like that's like life and, or death, you know, like really having a real impact. So this is the thing though, right? And that is insurance and insure tech companies, you'll see, the, you'll see where I'm going with this in a second. They always say that like people that are new to insurance don't understand its relevance until they make a claim. Right, until they get the money, they're like, oh, God, I have to do this thing. And boom, they get money in their account to fix something that's been broken, right? Because that's the nature of insurance. And like the Norwegian police or the people that took down this, you know, child porn site maybe didn't think it was possible or didn't understand that it would be easier if they used chain analysis to do it. But once they see it, they can't unsee it. And then they get to look at their problem solving in a completely different way without you having to explain it to them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't have to come in and go, hey, you could use this, it that, the other thing. Yeah, but it, it, but it changes their whole perception of the way they look at all problem solving. And that has to be super cool. Anyway, I'll let you both go. Caroline Malcolm, the head of international public policy and research. And Ulisse, <laughs> I got it wrong. Oh, I tried. Deloto, the managing Ulisse, director. Ulisse, Ulisse, perfect. Ulisse, perfect, thank you. <laughs> the managing director of APAC in Japan and chain analysis. That was awesome. Hopefully it was good for you. Thank it's you very fantastic. much. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you.